Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf and welcome to my podcast, Cleaning Up the Mental Mess a podcast dedicated to giving you simple and scientifically backed tips and techniques to help you take back control of your mental and physical and emotional health. In this episode, I discuss a very popular topic in psychology and the mainstream, highly sensitive personalities. Joining me to discuss this hot topic is Dr. Elaine Aaron, the psychologist who coined the term and pioneered the research on this topic. We discuss how she came to this discovery, signs of a highly sensitive person, and common myths or misperceptions, tips for someone who's highly sensitive, and advice for those who live with a highly sensitive person, the benefits of being highly sensitive, and what not to say to someone who is highly sensitive. We also discuss her new book, The Highly Sensitive Parent, and Dr. Elaine shares some great tips and strategies for those who identify as highly sensitive parents, such as how to navigate intense social contact, how to cope with overstimulation, and how to manage quarantine. Dr. Elaine Aaron is a clinical and research psychologist who has studied high sensitivity since 1990. She has published five books on the subject, including The Highly Sensitive Person, The Highly Sensitive Child, and Psychotherapy and The Highly Sensitive Person, as well as scientific articles in leading journals in her field. She and her husband, Arthur Aaron, are also well known for their study of love and close relationships. If you enjoy my podcast, I'd really appreciate you leaving a five-star review and subscribing to my podcast. And share episodes and this podcast with friends and family members because let's be honest, we all know someone who needs a little help with their mental health. One last thing before we begin. If you would like to receive text messages from me with mental health tips, exclusive content, insider access to sales and events and more, just text Dr. Leaf to 833-285-3747. The details will also be in the show notes. And now on to today's episode. Dr. Elaine Aaron, I am so excited to have you in the studio with me today. Thank you for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to come and share your brilliant knowledge with us. I'm really, really honored. Well, you're very flattering, but I, I really like informing people who, especially people who are highly sensitive but don't know it. So like I saw this as a great opportunity. It's, it's not the same speaking to an audience of all highly sensitive people as it is reaching out to to maybe to new people and that's really important to me it is that's wonderful you're very famous for coining the term highly sensitive person more than 25 years ago you know that's where i heard about you as well is what led to this discovery you know and why is it so important that we should understand this concept right well i was sent for some medically related psychotherapy because a doctor thought i had overreacted to a procedure so after I saw this woman a few times, she said to me, well, I think you're just highly sensitive. She said, I am, my husband is, all the people I really enjoy knowing and talking to are, are I don't know, I'd call it highly sensitive. She didn't even remember using the term. So it was quite funny later when I tried to give her credit. She said, don't give me credit. I had never, she just didn't, but it's a term we use a lot. And I was fascinated by the fact that we do use the term. I'm also a psychologist. So you hear it, you know, you heard it even then being used. So I went and researched the literature and found it was only used to describe good parents and for gifted people. And that gifted people feel that all gifted people are highly sensitive. I can't say the reverse because they define giftedness as 3% of the population. Then this is more like 20% of the population. But then I began to look at the literature on other things that were similar 
infant temperament especially was being studied then. So I began to think, well, infants grow up. (laughs) And what is the right term for them? We have been calling them shy and introverted. And inhibited was Jerome Kagan's term at Harvard. And, And these are not, these are what you can see on the outside. But what's going on inside, I like to joke that only a highly sensitive person myself would have known. And then I have a husband, Art Aaron, who is a brilliant researcher, and I just knew exactly how to go forward with research on this. So the first thing I did was to interview people. And that's when I discovered 30% of sensitive people are actually extroverts. But we've gotten that all messed up because even when I was beginning to study this, introversion was about being sensitive to stimuli, actually, in experiments. But it became through the big five, that big personality thing, it, that is based on people's perceptions of other people, the adjectives we use to describe people. And so extroversion became something visible, sociable. What is introversion? What are people doing when they're not being sociable? And, and the words to describe it were all over the place. So it became clear to me that just many extroverts, 30% about are highly sensitive. That's fascinating. So it's not associ- it's associated, but it's not in, in the way that it's been defined in the past. Very, very right. confusing. And, and so that makes 70% of us, like myself, introverted, but that doesn't, it really confuses the extroverts because when they take an introversion questionnaire based on, say, the book Quiet, they find they answer yes to almost all of them as introverts, not, not as extroverts, because of the way it's been defined. The, the way it's been so, defined, but actually they're highly sensitive. And so you can be highly sensitive and extrovert at the same time. Yeah. That's There's fascinating. Also, also equal numbers of men and women, even though you, the men have a hard time owning up to their sensitivity. And we should talk more about sensitive men later. But this is the year of the highly sensitive man, and we're trying to get blog thing posted up on my website about that. I love that. I love that. That's incredible. Why don't you dive into that? Why don't we start off the conversation with the fact that men are also highly sensitive? Well, I, I want to be sure to define the trait for people who may be, because we use sensitive in many ways, and I don't want people to think of sensitive as being really nice, really caring, because sensitive people, it, it just... It means something else. It's, it's a trait found in about 20% of humans, but also around that percentage in over 100 species, probably most species. And that surprised biologists because, as with humans, we, we thought evolution kind of pushed us towards, in a particular evolutionary niche, the perfect person for that place. But actually, two types are desirable, and the sensitive ones are paying attention to their environment. and. The interesting thing is you might say, well, wouldn't everybody do that? And of course, everyone's sensitive to their environment to some degree, but paying close attention sometimes pays off and sometimes doesn't. Sometimes uh, what you experience in this situation doesn't apply to the next situation. I joke about at the racetrack, if you notice in the first two races, the jockey's wearing red silks because you're highly sensitive and you start betting in the third race on the jockey. That's that's not a good idea. (laughs) And the other interesting thing is that if everyone were highly sensitive, there'd be no point in being sensitive. So that's what really it's called negative dependence frequency. That's what really keeps the numbers down. So, and, and I've over the years come to define it in terms of four characteristics. The first one and most important is depth of processing. And that's why it didn't get described correctly, because you can't see someone processing things deeply. You might notice they're slow to make decisions, for instance, or that they have deep thoughts or they like deep conversations, but you can't otherwise really see it unless you know them well. So the second thing, I I do D-O-E-S, does or does, because it's easy to remember. So the the second letter, O, actually stands for what people notice the most, which is being easily overstimulated. And if you're going to process everything deeply, then you're going to wear out in in the same situation where someone else isn't paying attention. Then the E stands for emotional responsiveness and empathy, which we, we know from brain studies and just from my interviews with people and the, the test, which we can talk about in a minute. Very important. Some people call it, oh, emotional reactivity, but actually 
we need emotions to motivate us to process anything. That's why we have tests for, for people who are trying to learn something because they want to do well. So they're motivated to learn. That's why we learn a language better in a foreign country because we're motivated right away to, to try to say something in that language. So, and then the last letter, S, is for sensitive to subtle stimuli and just noticing things others don't. But it all kind of wraps back into the depth of processing, which again, just to give you an example, my son and my nephew, on separate occasions, I happened to be present on the first day that they went to preschool. And in each case, they stood in the back of the room and watched because they'd never seen so many kids or so many toys, and they, they wanted to observe before plunging in. And the teachers came up to them in both cases and said, what's the matter? Are you shy? Are you afraid? And bingo, there goes the label and the drop in self-esteem, because you, you know there's something not so good about that, especially if you're a boy. So there we go to the, the trouble with names. Right. And sensitivity, people have complained about, is not fitting well with men either. And they like to talk about, sometimes they say, finely tuned nervous system, which is maybe a little better. But I actually point out that sensitive has both positive and negative connotations. It's one of the few words in the English language that really sits on that line. So I've actually written a blog on sensitive phobic because there's sensitive phobia, because we worry about that term, men especially being seen that way. There are people who've said they read my book sitting on a subway. It was in a paper book cover because they didn't want anyone to see that they were highly sensitive. <laughs> so I think that's improving now. I think the whole thing of geeks being appreciated and Saturday Night Live has a really funny commercial about a sensitive boy and what kinds of toys he likes. It's, it's very cute. You can actually find it on the internet. So another confusing thing about this to people is that they can also be high sensation seekers. <laughs> so if you're a high sensation seeker, an extrovert, people might not notice your sensitivity, except that you need more downtime. And another aspect of sensitivity that makes it a little bit hard to see or understand is something called differential susceptibility. Because sensitive people and sensitive children are picking up more on everything in their environment, they pick up more on negative in the environment, so they're more vulnerable to depression and anxiety and, and be feeling shy. But they also pick up on the positive in their environment, so they get more from interventions and more from good parenting. And their brains are wired to pick up on the positive quite a bit, we see from the brain studies. So the thing is, is when you meet someone and they talk about being anxious or depressed or bothered by all this noise or, or oh, that really hurt my feelings, we, we think of that as a sensitive person. The sensitive people who are, you know, come from a, a, a good environment, you hardly notice, except that they're creative, they have deep thoughts, they can be emotional, but I, I, I like to call that kind of emotion-emotional leadership. They often will cry or be angry or worried before other people, and it's often good for the other people to go to that same state. They just didn't realize what they were feeling or what they were needing. So they can lead in that kind of emotional, help people almost understand what's going on. Exactly, precisely. Precisely. And I, I joke, probably the first ones to cry at a funeral, but that releases the tears in everyone else. So it's a, a wonderful thing. And I say that to people who complain about, about crying so easily, which almost every sensitive person does. Although the men do not admit to it, it's hard to get them to admit to it, but they cry easily too. Usually they turn that off the first time they were called a crybaby in kindergarten when they fell down and got hurt. Or, the thing done to sensitive boys and to men is very hard on them. Very yeah, hard. that's that's an interesting topic. I'd like to go a little bit in, in a little bit further on because I think that gender that the gender stereotyping, don't be a crybaby, has caused a lot of problems. Extremely, and a lot of sensitive men. Well, we we made a film called Sensitive: The Untold Story, and we interviewed men, and the four men we interviewed all spoke about their anger. And they said, for one thing, being angry is the one emotion that's kind of accepted among boys and men, but also they were angry at being misunderstood, especially by their fathers, or kind of foisted onto their mothers, mothers making them into confidants, 
So the raising of sensitive children is a huge topic, and the raising of sensitive boys especially. Ted Seff wrote a book called Strong Sensitive Boy. He wanted it to be about men, but the publisher said, oh, there aren't any sensitive men, or they wouldn't want to read such a book. But he went to five different cultures and interviewed people and found that sensitivity was most unacceptable in North America, a little better in in Europe and Scandinavia, uh, and quite a bit better in India and Thailand. It just depends on the culture, how much it's accepted. Yeah, that's interesting. It sounds almost like the more collectivistic the culture versus individualistic, the more accepted it will be, that that is actually a positive trait, not a negative trait. I think so. And I, I think it has to do with being sensitive to others. I also think that it has to do with North America, South America, Australia, New Zealand, are immigrant cultures. They're, you know, <laughs> the Aboriginals would would scoff at that. They're probably the most sensitive, but a culture, and that would be actually interesting to, it's true in Aboriginal culture, a culture that's been around a long time has a great deal of nuances. And a person who can appreciate those nuances and say manners or art is appreciated more. And one of the people I interviewed for the highly sensitive person was a man from Europe and his, his parents loved his sensitivity and he loved it too. And they were so happy to have a boy like that. He was a musician, but he was a psychologist actually. And he studied the aesthetics of art. I think I may have blown his cover, but <laughs> anyway, he was a very sensitive man. And the only way that people knew about it who worked with him was that he liked to go out in the middle of the day and take a walk when things were kind of rough. <laughs> and he went home on time. He, he didn't stay around because he needed his downtime. So that's, that's fascinating. That's so, so someone who identifies as a highly sensitive person, how can they start to, you know, just for what you defined, how can they manage to, they start with a broad sense of how could they manage that and then maybe talk a little bit more about the, from the male side. Because I know that as you've, you've defined it beautifully now. So how do you manage that? How do we see that, turn that into a positive trait? Well, it is a positive trait. Well, we, we have another thing I've invented over the years is what we call the five to thrive. <laughs> that's a term I think maybe used in cancer too, but it's five to thrive for highly sensitive people. And we say, first of all, you've got to believe the trait is real. It's it's real because people balk at it at first and, and maybe they don't like the idea even. But we talk a little bit about the research. The brain research is really clear about it. And our own, there's a, 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 a test for it, one we use in research, but also the simplified one is on my website hsperson.com. And I mentioned that too, because men tend to score a little lower on that. And we can't do anything to change that because on every item, they score the same. But when you put it all in a test, something in them makes them frightened and they start answering fewer of them. So, the, so first, believing in the trait. The second is reframing your past. Because so that crybaby thing that happened in kindergarten, you have to understand that's because of your sensitivity and because of your culture, and that there's nothing wrong with that event. And people usually have a long string of events in childhood, but also in adulthood in terms of jobs and relationships. Sensitive people go through a lot of jobs often because they can't stand certain social environments or moral environments that are going on around them in a, in a business culture. And then the 24-7 work stuff is often too much for them, and they don't know it but they have to leave. And many people see them as being ideal for law or medicine or, or nursing, but those are not actually necessarily ideal for them. What they do best usually is self-employment because they can spot what, what people need and they can provide it really well. There's a guy like John Hughes. He's written a book called Unselling. And is, he's highly sensitive, and he's also in the movie Sensitive, the Untold Story. And he makes a big point in his book of just do a really good job, and that's how you get clients. Just be interested in them. Don't try to push yourself onto them or sell yourself, and they'll sense your genuine interest. And things grow slowly that way, but they're solid as they grow. So sensitive people, I think, can do anything any career, but they have to do it in the right way and in the right environment. And they do need, they take, 
negative feedback very seriously. And that means that they need to hear the positive too, or they'll completely redo their, their work because all they, they see is that it wasn't liked. But if you talk about the positive, and uh, there's one study of people in the workplace in an IT setting in India, they found that the sensitive employees were the most popular with their supervisors because they were seen as working so hard, but they had the least well-being. And you can imagine how many people quit their jobs when actually the company really appreciates them and needs them, but they're never told that. And, and often they're not even noticed until they're gone. So that's a whole other subject is career and workplace, but it's an important subject for, for most people. Feeling stressed, anxious, overwhelmed? You're not alone. In fact, everyone struggles with some level of mental distress. Personally, I struggle with anxiety due to work and family demands. Running a business and being a mom of four is hard work. So, in addition to using and practicing good mental hygiene and my mind management techniques, I was searching for additional help. Then I discovered Feels. Feels is premium CBD delivered directly to your doorstep. Their products can naturally help reduce stress, anxiety and pain when coupled with good mind management. It's easy to use, just place a few drops under your tongue and feel the difference within minutes. If you're new to CBD and a little worried or hesitant, Feels offers free CBD hotline to help guide your personal experience. Feels works naturally to help you feel better. There's no high, hangover, or addiction. Feels has me feeding my best every day, and it can help you too. Become a member today by going to feels.com slash drleaf, and you'll get 50% off your first order with free shipping. That's F-E-A-L-S dot com slash drleaf to become a member and get 50% automatically taken off your first order with free shipping. Feels.com slash Dr. Leaf. The link and offer details will also be in the show notes. Well, I think that's just a brilliant point that you've raised because, you know, it just shows, goes to the fact that everyone needs to be told a little bit of good along with the bad. But if you're highly sensitive, it's absolutely vital that you actually balance yes. that. So for I, an employee, I, yeah. if I hear you say that what you've just said, that would mean for an employer that if you've got a person who you may be not complimenting enough and when they leave, you realize the gap, that's for you to realize, encourage people more, be a bit more tuned in Absolutely. and encourage others. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The, and, and it's another example of where most of the time what's good for sensitive people is good for everybody. They just don't realize it. Secondhand smoke. <laughs> and when we get to parenting, all parents need help, but they don't realize it as, as much as sensitive ones because it's so overstimulating and taxing to raise a child, especially when they're young. So, so I was going through these five and we better finish them up. So reframing and then there's healing trauma because you've got that potential for doing really well. And I think people, sensitive people get more from things like therapy and even reading a book. You know, people read my book and say, it changed my life. Well, that's an example of being able to really take in something that's helpful to you. But that healing needs to happen because otherwise, well, because you've taken in the negative, you understand a lot about this. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cleaning up the mental mess. That's what we're trying to do. (laughs) You've got to deal with that negative. Yeah. And it's extremely imprinted on sensitive people because they're trying to learn, you know, they're observing, oh, they don't like it when I do that, so I won't do that ever again, you know, that that kind of wiring. Then it's very important that people rearrange their lifestyle to suit their sensitivity. And then the last one is getting to know some other sensitive people. Then there's lots of ways to do that. In the U.S., we do some gatherings and we do the things that happen and places like 1440 and Kripala, uh, but one can do it in one's own community, I I would think. And people start out often with chat rooms and things like that and meetups. You just want to meet some sensitive people, keeping in mind that they'll be very different. They're not all perfect, but they will have a certain feeling that you can feel that's different. When I'm in a room of all highly sensitive people, I joke, it feels almost like you're being in church, but it's because I think so polite. Their questions are polite. Their attention is completely on you. You don't feel that vibe of of doubt. Of course, if I'm talking about sensitivity, of of course I get that. (laughs) Anyway, so that's the five. 
And then we were going to talk about the tips they need. Well, first and most important is is really downtime. Self-care is another way of putting it. And it's people sometimes think that sounds kind of selfish, but it's because we give so much. Generally speaking, we we need work that is meaningful. And we choose jobs that are things that help other people. And then it's easy to be burned out from those, whether it's teaching or nursing or medicine or any kind of health care or child care. These things are very tiring. So we have to get our downtime. And sometimes these careers don't allow it. And that's often why, well, if they, they, they come in for therapy or consultation, often a lot of what they need is to get the stress off of themselves by not working in a stressful environment and not, you know, they've got to take their downtime. And downtime, I, I say, is something we, we don't always understand in this culture, which is not a lot of stimulation. So turning off all the noise, which everyone else is doing, so you think you need to do that too. You may feel at first, this is kind of weird, but what happens is your mind just floats along and it revisits the things that have happened and that's, you're processing it, you're processing and a lot of it goes on unconsciously, but there has to be a stopping of the input for that processing to go on. I rave about meditation as being a really good thing for sensitive people. Now, I, I most recommend TM because it takes you into the deepest state of rest. But whatever people like in terms of meditation, it, it gets you out of the stimulating environment. It gets your eyes closed. 80% of our stimulation comes in through our eyes. So, but you wanted to yeah, say I want to, I do, I just wanted to, to um, emphasize the point that you've made because a lot of my research, and I've just done a set of clinical trials over last year, over the last year, looking at the mind-brain interaction, but a lot of my mm-hmm. research and work has been around the unconscious mind and the importance yes. of an understanding mind. It's one of those areas that's kind of misunderstood with the emphasis on brain, so much neuroreductionism. So I try and show yeah. people how we've got to look at mind and the brain is the instrument, whereas we've got to really focus on mind and, and dig deeply. And when you talk about that downtime, how that's not actually just an option it's a, it's a, it's it's an essential and one of the things i teach people and i've shown it in my clinical trials that when you do what you said just down switch off to the external switch on to the internal be quiet go inside yourself let your mind wander it completely reboots how the different frequencies and energies of the brain energy and the you know the alpha beta all that mm-hmm. how that works and it changes your immune system i mean it changes everything and we've saw, saw this this link and so i've really emphasized in my work the importance of taking thinker moments as a mindset that you wake up in the morning and you deliberate did be deliberate about taking thinker moments whether they're five seconds 10 minutes one hour vital so i just wanted to undergird what you're saying and i'm very pleased that you emphasize that because in our modern era people have got hurry sickness (laughs) oh absolutely and and so we also need to get enough sleep i recommend eight hours in bed whether you're asleep or not with everything off (laughs) and i also recommend if possible you know, at least an hour a day of downtime. And then if possible, a, one day a week of doing nothing, you know, but pleasurable things, but not, not adventures. I mean, it's a little tricky with the high sensation seekers because they want both. And vacations, don't fall for that stuff they sell you right at the beginning to go on one adventure trip after another. Sleep. <laughs> when you're wound up, at first, it's hard to relax because you still got that cortisol flowing, but you have to persist with it. And after a day or two, you'll be sleeping a lot for a few days. And that's good. That's what a vacation's about. And I think there's something to be said for having that vacation cabin that you go to every time. The, you know, travel is now a commercial enterprise like weddings, and you're being pushed to do something that traditionally we just went to our vacation cabin for for a month and in Europe. That was the big thing. Is like in Scandinavia, you go up to the mountains for for at least a month and just 
crew, you know, just hang out in the sunshine, <laughs> the flowers. It just uh, be quiet for a moment. You know, it's, it's interesting if you listen to people in most, when people are talking, they're just saying, I just want a break. I just want to go and do nothing. <laughs> and then the time comes for vacation and they book these trips that from morning till night, they're running like crazy. So mm. yeah, that's, we, we need to really look at what vacation actually means in terms of rest. Mm. I'm very glad you've raised it. I think that's such a vital component. And, and people around you, like, okay, in a relationship, you need to take downtime away from the person and you, you need them to understand that you'll be a better companion after your downtime. And you'll probably teach them that because irritability with another person is almost always for sense the person about needing downtime. And not entirely because we're also just sensitive to more things than a person is less sensitive. We can seem very fussy about, oh, that noise is bothering me when, you know, the other person may say, no nothing in the sense of the person that's a problem except this fussiness. So that's a whole other thing is getting along in a relationship. And I should mention that we have a, another movie, Sensitive and in Love, which is kind of a feature film. But then we just released a documentary of my husband and I talking about sensitivity in relationships. It's called Sensitive Lovers Going Deeper into Their Relationships because we had originally planned to make a documentary, but it turned into a feature film because we had these enactments, and then we just sort of went with the enactments. They, they captured the movie, but we wanted certain information, so we'll show a scene and then tell them why we put that scene into the story. And we cover a lot of ground. My husband's one of the most eminent researchers in close relationships. I don't know if you've heard of the 36 questions that went viral a few years ago, but people lo love those. And that was just a product of his research, not anything intended to get people closer. But now I hear people are using it during the pandemic to, by Zoom, to get close to people, to feel closer, which is a beautiful. Yeah, it's a very, it's a, it's a cool thing. And we, we did not copyright it or try to make money off of it. It's right out there on the internet. It's no problem using it <laughs> oh that's wonderful we can put that in all these links we'll put in the show notes so that people can get their hands on this information because it's incredibly helpful and useful so thank you yes good so now let's talk let's talk a little bit about your this book the highly sensitive parent which i'm very excited about too because I mean, i'm a mother of four and my kids are all in their 20s and between 22 and 29 and just you describing this I've, i can already see that i have a couple of my children that are definitely highly sensitive but just what grabbed me about this book so much of what you've already said is how as a parent you always feel the need to you, you want the best for your kids we all know that mm -hmm. but at the sometimes you don't realize how you actually have to look after yourself to be the best parent. And it's almost like this book gives parents permission, even though you're dealing with a highly sensitive parent, I think any parent could benefit from this book because it really helps a parent to recognize that if you're going to give so much which you naturally will do, you just better make sure that you're filling up. So that's a very broad overview. But can you talk a little bit about this book? And one of the things that I, I just made a note in a couple of places, but the one thing that I really thought was so important was a statement you make about the more that is learned about parenting in general, the more we know that the key to successful parenting is being attuned and responsive, even when setting reasonable limits. That really struck a chord in me because I know that that's been the parenting style I've tried to adopt. And so I was, I love this book. So can you talk? a little bit about this and just the content well there's a, a lot to say about the research the, the book kind of speaks for itself i guess if there was one thing that i have to pound home in that book is the importance of sensitive people getting help sensitive parents having help and if their their partner understands that and pitches in that's great if not i kind of joke that if you've got a college fund for your kid Take some money out of that now <laughs> and use it for this because you want your kid to be in the best possible shape when he goes to college. And that requires you being in good shape. There's a lot of research on that for some reason it's taken so long, but this year a study came out on, on parent burnout, not sex to parents, but all parents and how, how difficult it is. And, you know, when I look back on, on my mother, you know, she fed us and clothed us. She was mostly... She had actually a job outside the home, but, you know, she cleaned the house and she turned us loose. And school educated us and vacations, we were on our own. <laughs> it wasn't always the, the best situation. But look at the change in which now parents feel obliged to have their kids involved in something all the time. I mean, 
summer camp. I mean, partly it's because the parents need something, but they're also, you know, the activities after school and the amount of parental involvement. I mean, we had the PTA, you went to a PTA meeting now, and then, but now there's so much that's expected of parents in terms of, well, helping their kids with their schoolwork. That was not a normal obligation when I was a child, <laughs> which was a while back. But the, and the parenting books, there was one parenting book, Dr. Spock, when I was a parent, and my mother disapproved of Dr. Spock. He was too liberal. <laughs> so, and, that, and the advice in there was fine. But now there's so much advice. And then parents just get so bogged down by all of this parenting information. And then it gets into raising children with different temperaments. I know someone who's raising a child with an extremely active, dramatic, difficult temperament, and she's highly sensitive. And people are always telling her how she should raise this child and what she's done wrong. It's just not true because sensitive parents need to understand the temperaments of their children. And if they're a sensitive parent and their child is not sensitive, right there you have a particular scenario that's going to play out if you don't remain the alpha parent. Because it's learned pretty soon how to throw the kind of tantrum that'll make the sensitive parent back off <laughs> and, and stop. So let's talk about the research for a minute because we don't do, I don't write a book without doing some research. So we did a survey of a, a couple thousand parents, both sensitive and not, about we had a lot of questions, but they fell into three categories. Being attuned to your child and creative as a parent finding parenting difficult and how it affects your your partnership, your co-parenting co partner. And we found that sensitive people were quite a bit more attuned to their children and had creative ideas, all that. Found parenting much more difficult, and that included the social things, but also decision-making and feeling what their children are feeling so deeply that that can also kind of wipe you out, of course. And then interestingly, they did not have any more problems in their relationship with their co-parent than the others, than the people without the trait. So that was interesting. Right before the book was published, in time for me to revise the introduction, came a study finding that sensitive parents were not so good. <laughs> so why? Well, because you've heard, I know, of these three parenting styles, authoritarian, which is being too firm, taking away all control from the child, permissive, which is too far the other way, and authoritarian, which was that attunement with boundaries, which is what we all aim for. But imagine an overstimulated, highly sensitive parent, and I think most of them are. They're either going to say, go do what you want. I can't take it anymore. I'll be too permissive. Or they're going to be, go to your room. I don't want to hear any noise, any more noise, and stop it. You know, that kind of parenting. And there was no tendency for sensitive parents to be more one kind than the other. And so the authors of the article felt the same way, that, that's, that that was the situation. And another one has come out about parenting teenagers, which... Again, I, I think the parents, the sensitive parents, some, in some cases, perhaps are being affected by their own childhoods, but mostly are being affected by not being able to stand back. And, you know, to process a teenager's behavior is a little different, but it requires processing of, okay, what's actually going on here? Is this a seeking independence or is this breaking the rules and the boundaries that I have to enforce? That kind of thinking. And if you're not taking the time to do that, and if you're getting frightened that you're doing something wrong, then you're not going to parent as well. You're going to try to come down on them or give them too much freedom and also get over involved in thinking their experiences like yours, which is easy to do, but isn't the case. So it's more important, the book, than, than ever that parents you know, sensitive parents get it together. You know, they, you know, nobody had written a book on it. It was sort of news, really. That this yeah, that's why I'm interested. 
One of the best ways to help your children develop their stress resilience, become more confident, less anxious, is through brain building activities. That's why I love KiwiCo and cannot recommend it enough. KiwiCo is a science and art subscription box for kids, tested by kids. I gave a few boxes to a friend who has two young children and I just love watching their excitement as they learn to build cool things like a disc launcher while learning about physics and inertia. KiwiCo makes education fun, which makes the knowledge more sustainable and useful. As a parent, it can be hard to find creative and new things to keep your children busy and challenged, especially during the holidays like summer vacation. KiwiCo solves that problem and you can spend quality time tackling projects together. KiwiCo is redefining play with hands-on projects that build confidence, creativity, and critical thinking skills. There's something for every kid or kid at heart at KiwiCo. Get your first month free on select crates at kiwico.com forward slash Dr. Leaf. That's K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash Dr. Leaf. The link and offer details will be in the show notes. So what, what would you be some advice that you could give for a parent who, just from our discussion now, has actually said, hey, that's me. I'm highly sensitive and I have the scenario that you've just described or whatever other scenario. How does it Again, sense- getting help and reducing the stimulation is very important. Also, I think the more that you get into feel guilty about your parenting, the more you're esteem drops and then the more your decisions are going to be based on feeling bad about yourself so i think to take a teenager any child for example if you're worried about yourself you're going to be seeking validation in some way by overdoing it in some way or looking for validation from the child which just isn't going to fly you can't you can't do that so working on that five to thrive, working on understanding your sensitivity and healing your past wounds and reframing your past experiences so that you don't project onto your child your own difficult times. And then, you know, a lot of sensitive parents are really good parents. This is something that's average. So you really have to be careful about taking this to, to heart and saying, oh, I must be a bad parent. I'm highly sensitive. No, I'm positive that it probably looks more like, you know, that there's quite a bit at the two extremes, as we see with differential susceptibility, that not everybody's in the middle by any means with this trait because they've been affected by their environments. But even the really good parents with good childhoods and all, all of that, if they don't get their downtime, they're just going to, they know it, they know what it's like. But what's hard is to, is to get the rest of the world to know this. People often shake their heads. Why do you need help? Why do you need, you're not working. Why would you need daycare? Why would you need someone in the house? So there's judgment, which adds to the guilt and the shame and that kind of thing. So if I'm hearing you saying it, it's to be actually a person who's highly, a parent who's highly sensitive. They need to be, almost need to express that, look, this is what I need in order to help you. I need this kind of boundary. I need this kind of downtime. I need to have a day where I can just be alone or where you can go and stay with whatever granny or something like that yeah and then you know i say if it's got to be the tv or the device and it's going to keep your sanity do it right because your sanity is the most important thing you have to walk out of a room and say we'll deal with this later do it because the kinds of things that we say in anger are not very useful and things we would like to take back but we can't now, with children, you know, with everybody, you can always repair. You can always go back and say, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. You know, I was just really frazzled. And that's good role modeling for children. But nevertheless, there can be sort of labels that we put out or judgments or diagnoses that we don't want to say to anybody in the family. You know, oh, you're just like your mother right now. Those kind of things that just don't help. <laughs> no, they just make it worse. So is the highly sensitive parent someone who may do something like that? They may shoot their mouth off before they mean to and say things that are damaging because from my work in the non-conscious 
on an unconscious, when you speak those without thinking it through, when you don't have the, and some people need, it's highly sensitive, they're going to need more time to really go and process and maybe someone else who doesn't have that trait. Those aren't really the truth. It's more just like you're exploding out this toxic energy and it comes out the wrong way. But if you're taking your downtime, you've got a chance to, okay, that's what I want to say, but that's not really the truth. So how can I? And you need to have the time away. The the boundary, the go away for a few moments or put them in front of the TV or go for a walk or something in order to help yourself process. So it's almost like we have to give parents permission that it's scientifically good for you to actually take that time out for yourself. Because I think a parent is in in just the whole general stereotype of a parent is that you've got to be on tap 24-7. You've got to do everything for everyone. You've always got to have it together. If you have a breakdown, well, what's wrong with you? You, the parent. I think that has put so much pressure on a parent that they can't always be the best parent right and i know you know you you recommend them i've recommended books to parents to highly sensitive parents because they have useful knowledge in them but they've come back to me feeling i'm such a bad parent because you know these parenting books are sort of talking about ideal behavior but i would say that sensitive people because of their other traits some might shut down be really careful about anger and rarely express anger, but possibly build up bitterness. Or you know, there's there's research that shows not with just with sensitive parents, although this was more true for sensitive parents. I'm feeling I regret having a child. And I wish I hadn't had one. And do you know that it's you're very interested in the unconscious? You probably know this, but you might not have researched it. I had to for this book. Having thoughts of hurting or killing your child are not unusual. It's whether we act on these thoughts. And sensitive people tend not to act impulsively. That's the one thing that they are not. As the opposite of sensitivity is not high sensation seeking. It is impulsivity. But nevertheless, when you've reached the end of your rope, you have gotten there. And like I said, some children will figure out how to get their parent at that point, their sensitive parent especially at that point. So one really has to be careful about giving in at certain points where you'd like to just walk off to your room and let them do whatever they want, but that you, you can't do that. And you usually can push through and do the right thing. I think sensitive parents need to think about that, that they may be paying a high price if they march off right now and give in because that'll keep happening that behavior will keep happening. And some kids are sensation seekers and love getting into a fight. And just, you know, they defy you and look at you like, okay, what are you going to do about this? There are kids like that. They grow up fine, but they, they need a lot of special parenting. And so another thing I say is do get help with a parenting specialist who understands temperament, who understands temperament, so that they don't just say, oh, just you have to parent this way, not that way. They okay, with that kind of child, you need to do this. But with this kind of child, you wouldn't do that. You do something else. That's, that's very good advice. And parents yeah. need to feel released to do that. It's not like you're a bad parent because you're asking for help. You're a good parent if you're asking for help because you want to do better. You go to pediatricians and ask questions about how to take care of your child's health. Why not go to someone and talk about how to take care of your child's mental health? Because you know it there. You know this. I yeah. know, and that's just, that just goes to what is currently happening in this day and age, and that's been happening for the last 30 to 60 years. And just watching in, in the trajectory of my career is that there's been so much emphasis on the physical that there's been an ignoring of the deepest non-conscious mind, the spiritual part of us. And that is the bigger part of us. So we've got to pay attention to that. You know, that's the whole mental health aspect is not being really, it's much better now, but it's, you know, I noticed, I'm sure you've seen as well in in your career, I noticed the changes as I was practicing. I practiced for 25 years and did research, but I don't practice anymore. But I noticed the change. I noticed the change from let's actually get down and let's talk about these things. Let's find a way. Let's go to a therapist. Let's get a counselor. Let's get family therapy. I used to do a lot of family therapy to the point where it was, oh, they're a difficult child. They get a label, they get a drug, you know, and it's just shove it down or you're a bad parent and there's something wrong with you. And so it's all just been reduced to such a biomedical model. What I believe you are introducing or trying to encourage and what I believe that I'm trying to do is help people to accept the the mind side of things that, you know, there's, there's, you can do work here. You can actually work your way through these things and mm-hmm. it's okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a beautiful summary of what 
what everybody needs, but sense of people just really have to do to to re-understand. Because even in the best environments, most sensitive children, their parents were trying to train that out of them because they thought there was one kind of personality that does best in the world and it's not sensitive. Mm, talk no. about that because that's definitely a stereotype that's caused a lot of problems. You, it's fascinating. What you just, just said now is so important that we've, we've got this ideal of what a perfect a perfect person who's going to succeed in life should look like, male right. and female. And there's a certain little stereotype for each. And if you're showing other, other sensitivities, it's the, the parent tries to train it out of them. You know, that's well, don't that, be a crybaby and all that kind of yeah, that brings up also cultural differences in this country. African-American women in particular tell me that they are never supposed to be particularly sensitive. They're supposed to be strong and tough and be able to do everything for themselves. And I think immigrants tend to see that that desire. They want their children to be strong and tough and succeed and have all the things that they came here to get for them. And the, the thing is, there's just different ways of succeeding. The survival strategy of being highly sensitive is just a really a good one. It's a really good one, but it looks different. I'll, I'll tell you, I mean, sensitive animals, the males, for example, don't fight the other males. They, they tend to avoid fights just as females tend to avoid fights because females are tending, they're young and they can't get killed. They're pregnant or nursing. And in fact, that's probably part of what makes a sense the men seem sort of feminine is that they don't like fights. They don't like that kind of aggressiveness. But the females tend to like them. They tend to know where the food is because if they're not fighting over the best patch, they're going off and finding something else that the others haven't noticed. Then when there's a famine or a shortage of food, they know where to find food. There's a great movie called The Black Wolf of Yellowstone about this wolf who's clearly highly sensitive. They don't use the term. But he sneaks in and mates with the females of oh, the, the leaders of the pack don't want him to do that. So they chase him. And there's a road in Yellowstone that the wolves are afraid to cross. And this wolf would just cross the road. <laughs> and others would be standing there just furious, but they were afraid to cross the road. <laughs> well, that kind of depth of processing, we want that in our children. And it, it's tricky. We, we do want them to try things that we think they'll be good at. So learning to swim or learning to ride a bicycle. I didn't learn those until I was 13 because, you know, it was hard for me. And so my parents just said, ah, so, so what? But I wanted to be able to do those things. So encouraging kids and giving them more time and maybe the lessons shouldn't be in a group so that they don't feel ashamed if they're slow to pick up on something. Some kids just go right into physical things, but there's social things that make them nervous or speaking up in class makes them nervous. And they need to be brought along slowly, but with the confidence that they can do it and avoiding things that you're pretty sure they can't do because you want them to keep having successful experiences and experiences of acclimatizing and how to do that. Oh, there's a friend you know over there, or this is like something else you've done, or let's do a little of it today and see how it goes next week. And that's so important to not just abandon them to their, to their feeling inadequate with no explanation or with the wrong explanation. I, I don't tell parents to tell their children they're highly sensitive right away. I start with how it comes up. You know, my son came home from school one day and he said, he was in an integrated school in Atlanta at the time. And he came home and he said, why are black people so angry? And I told him all about slavery. He came home the next day and he said, well, why won't they play with me? And I told him about how they've experienced discrimination and mistreatment by white people. And so they're, they're wary and they form their own groups. And so... You know, and then finally, he said, well, why don't the other kids care about this? I said, because you're different. You, you, you know, you're, you think about these things. And then I, you know, you might mention somebody else that you both know who's like that, too. And then they have a kind of a role model in their lives. And if they, you know, if it's more difficult and painful, why does this hurt me more than it hurts other people? You could say, well, some people are just like that. And then the term sensitivity kind of grows. They may hear it sometime, may hear you mention it to another adult. And of course, you also have to fend off the adults who want to change your child. And a, a lot of children experience that from 
teachers and relatives that there's something wrong with them. It's a it's a very difficult thing not to understand temperament. You know, doctors don't get trained in it. Teachers don't get trained in it. Even psychologists don't get trained in temperament. And so, I mean, that's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. I've trained so many physicians in my lifetime and psychologists and psychiatrists and in and, and around the mind concepts. And one of the mind things when you when you're talking about seeing the child as an individual with the individual context and tuning into them and listening to their story and helping them to process, that is something that I've, is so important. And you as a psychologist and just everything we're talking about now, what really worries me is all the, the whole movement from the IQ movement to the personality movement to the whole trying to put people in a box. So in 30 years ago I started working on I'm not going to do that with my patients I'm going to look at them as an individual and start trying to help them understand how they think and feel and choose and focus on the individual case study as opposed to you've got to be this or that or that and to recognize within that highly sensitive maybe one of the traits that you have and and I developed a profile long story short it's there's no right or wrong you're not an it you 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 type you and it li- aligns with what you're saying because it allows you to be you because that's what I'm hearing you say is you focus yes your work focuses on the highly sensitive person and you're an absolute expert and you delineate the need for us to understand this in 20% of the population and I'm so grateful but you also have an overarching message which is respecting the individual person's different way of thinking and let's you know yourself as a as a parent or as a, as a male or female, whatever you, who, whatever you are, who, whatever you're doing, is to recognize that beauty of your unique uniqueness and to embrace that and to think deeply about that and to learn from each other. So true. And I, I'll just say maybe we should end here, but it's really important the therapist you choose. Oh, is that important? <laughs> they don't understand temperament. They're all nice, you know. But but many of them have a program, including get you out of there fast with cognitive behavioral therapy, cure your symptom, and then it's your fault if you if you can't do it right. And uh, I'm what is called a depth psychologist because, like you, I, I want to hear their dreams. I want to hear their childhood. I want to hear all of that. And in each case, is an individual person. And interestingly, the research on that kind of therapy is that in the long run. In the long run, it works better. But in the short run, you people tend to get worse before they get better. Well, that's the treatment effect. Yeah. And you have to. Yeah. You have to. It's like any, my, I have neuro, I work with a lot of neurosurgeons and neuro, neurologists and surgeons in my work. And they always say, I've got to cut you up to make you better. And that's the analogy I always use to give, give people all the time. You've got to go through the. It's, You've got to embrace, process, reconceptualize, and it gets worse before it gets better. So I'm so glad you raised that. I'm so glad you raised about the importance of a therapist too, because you've got to be so careful that you find someone who's going to understand what you need. And and if you with a therapist who's not, if you feel like you're not being helped, move, move on. You don't have to stay with That's one person. Right. And and you will bond with someone who's nice to you. You've got to realize that you may have to break that bond. And and personally, I think it's okay to look for someone else. While you're in therapy, that's a big no-no, but just don't tell the person because you've got to find someone else that to compare it to. I saw eight people before I chose my union analyst, and I saw him for 20 years, and he was really, really good, but the others were not that good. So shop around until you feel that vibe. You can take a dream or a problem that's complex. And hear whether they're really getting you or not, or whether they jump to an answer before they really get you. And you just you just have to do it. I've got on my website a list of therapists who have gone through enough training to understand sensitivity. But I always say, I don't know that they're good therapists. I just know they understand sensitivity. And if you go to a therapist and you tell them about your sensitivity, they should be interested. If they don't know about it, they should want to read the research and all that. Otherwise, you're the consumer. You go, because a lot of times they'll say they kind of get it, but they're really waiting to interpret your sensitivity as something that else. That's that's such a good point, because they could completely take you down the wrong road and make you feel worse. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. I guess we don't want to be real negative because I No, but it's realistic. It's realistic. And I think at this point, it would be great. Um, Elaine, how can people find out more about you and find out about this list and get your books? So the website is www.hsperson.com. And on there, there's a lot of material. I've had that for 20 years. There's a lot of blogs, a lot of frequently asked questions. There's a list of therapists that have gone through this training and it keeps growing. And there is actually people that you know can be interviewed that are specialists in different 
areas so that I don't do all of the interviews <laughs> and speaking. And there's events on there, chances, you know, not right now, but generally there's something about once a month somewhere in the country or more with something for sensitive people, just exclusively for them. There's the movies. You can, you know, see the connection to get to those movies, but they're on Amazon, Netflix, some of them are. So there's a lot of resources there. I that Now I have a YouTube channel. <laughs> these are all kind of new things, but I have people kind of pushing me to do these things because they don't, they, they feel they, they too want the information out. It's a very, it's very satisfying to, to work with sensitive people and, and, and see them changed by this knowledge. It's very satisfying. Oh, it's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your work and your input and your time today and your pearls of wisdom. It's been absolutely fascinating. But we really think the same way. So We do. I loved it. I loved it. I love. I could talk to you for hours. It was fascinating. And it, it's just such an important topic that's being touched on in such a beautiful way. So thank you for what thank you're doing. You. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then... I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.